everybody. Welcome back to the Catholic Reading Challenge. We're in Holy Week actually recording this, so we're getting caught up on uh, our second story from March. And so we're discussing In Another Country by Ernest Hemingway today. And Mike, you were telling me, this is a lot shorter than the yeah. one that we read before, but you were telling me the other day how quintessential Hemingway this was and why, why this story was kind of a little bit representative of why you are so comfortable reading, like why you enjoy reading him yeah, so much. I have not read Hemingway in a long time. When I taught American literature, I taught Old Man in the Sea um, from some other lit classes. I taught some of his short stories. But to sit down and read it without necessarily thinking about like a lesson plan and how I'm going to teach it to yeah. the kids, but just to enjoy it. And right. I did. When I when I first started teaching, teaching it, I read a lot of his stuff. Um, he's one of those authors that just gets me. Maybe more so than any other American author. And I know that sounds like a bold claim, but I have a very short attention span. Yeah. And even when I'm reading books, I'll read a couple books at a time. And the way that I'll read it is in one sitting, I'll go back and forth. But I'll read a chapter, read a chapter, read a chapter. Hemingway, I don't do that. Hemingway, I'll, I'll start the, the story and I'll have to finish it. And while I'm reading him, my mind does not wander. Um the images that his words create are clear in my mind. And I think he has an understanding of the human condition that is is pretty profound. I'm not saying that he might not be um, a little bit dark, but I think that's actually unfair. Because if you read some of his stuff, specifically Old Man in the Sea, I think there is a, a transcendent um, redemptive element hiding in there that he can even recognize even if he did not reach that himself. Yeah. Yeah, and I think sometimes th some of his short stories maybe don't focus as much on um, on the redemptive part. I just came across a Flannery O'Connor quote actually in uh, as I was going through one of the World on Fire. The first, I think I was in looking flipping through the first um, journal that they put out, um, evangelical um, evangel evangelism and culture is the name of it. And I think they had a quote in one of, one of the pages by her. She she mentions how in the quote, it was something to the effect of how how important the redemptive piece of a story is to us as storytellers or readers of story, um, the chance for a character to be redeemed. So even if even if there's, uh, it's funny even with Hemingway, even if some of his stories might be darker or seem to um, maybe at least at a cursory reading, you know, lack redemption. Often there, if you on a second read, there's there are like these w open windows to the possibility of redemption, yeah. which is kind of a key part of a story that we're all looking for. Like, well, you know, is there hope for this person somewhere? Because I mean, essentially, what we're all asking is, is there still hope for us, even if even if X happens, right? Do we still have hope to hold on to? Because obviously, it's pretty bleak if the answer to that is, is no. If you ever read something and you get, you know, read a piece of fiction, I don't know, have you read a book have read a, or read an author where you came away with that where you're like, wow, I just, this was just lacking completely in any, any possibility. I can't of think of one off the top of my head. I'm sure there is something like that, but even films that I've seen that I would say are not, um, redemptive or maybe they have like a purely secular view or something like that. I think there's something in the human spirit that, that moves itself towards transcendence, even when it doesn't realize that it's doing it. Yeah. But I, Hemingway to me, um, 
these these people in his stories, and specifically this story, sometimes life is difficult. Sometimes life is tough. I mean, yeah. he, the settings of, of many of his stories are during war. Um, yeah. Hospitals during war, um, the front lines during war, um, people going through through hardship or depression or something like that. These are real, real things. And I think the tendency that we, we might have in, I've seen this big time in the evangelical community with the art or lack of art that the evangelical community produces. And I would say too, in, in modern Catholicism in the United States, that's the only thing I can speak to, um, and the the influence that the evangelical community has had on um, the aesthetic and evangelism and thought of, of American Catholicism has created an, a, a, a form of storytelling that I think is more um, propaganda, for lack of a better term, than art in the sense of we don't trust the audience to have complex characters. We don't trust the audience to deal with like the realness of, of, of humanity. So we're going to create these characters that are like, like you would see in a, um, in like a, an adaption of a, I don't know, I don't want to say like a Nicholas Sparks film or something like that. But everyone has to kind of fit in their box. You have the good guys and you have the bad guys. And the good guys look like this and the bad guys look like this. And the person who goes to church and does these things doesn't deal with this type of stuff. And I think all of us, if we're being honest with ourselves, see the futility. And not just the futility. I don't think that's the right word. Just how unrealistic that is with the human condition. That's why inaccuracy as well. Yeah. And and I think you want an author who is honest with the own spectrum of depravity and redemption of life and death and the human condition. I talk about Walker Percy a lot. To me, he's someone who does that. Um, And Hemingway, this story is just, I just think it hits the, the heart of the human condition. But even more than that, or apart from that, his, his technical ability as a writer and the way his prose just creates this scene with minimal prose to me is, is without, um, without rival. And anytime I read him, I'm just so impressed by him as a writer. So how did, how did his writing take you, like, kind of take you there very quickly in this short, short story? Well, I was thinking about this when we were talking about um, – Hemingway just now. If you ever, you can Google this. There's graffiti artists who will go to places in urban areas or say there's like the side of a, a wall on a highway or the side of a factory that's just covered in dirt and soot. And what they'll do is it's kind of a loophole in the wall. They won't paint, oh. but they'll remove the dirt to create a picture. Okay. So they created something. They did it in, uh, in, in public. But they didn't use paint. They removed the dirt to create this beautiful yeah, yeah. image. I forgot there's a name for it. And I think oh, what, interesting. what Hemingway does is he leaves those places to to let your mind fill it in. And he gives you just enough that I actually think even though his prose is more limited and his actual use of words is more limited than other authors, the, the, the images that he, he creates are so vivid and they don't fill in too much, right? They don't crowd out your imagination's ability to see this. And when I read in another country, I was walking on those streets in Milan with the main character. I could I could feel the weather. I could see the grayness in the skies. I could see the light in the windows. I could see the people that they're interacting with. He gives you just enough. And when you give someone just enough, I think music's this way. I think film's this way. When you actually trust your audience to, to take that, that idea, that image, 
and to, to make something in it in their own mind, it can actually create a more vivid depiction than someone who might be overly descriptive and yeah. overly wordy. Yeah, like it's this economic decision with words to say what what really needs to be told here in order to give the give the reader a sense of place and person before kind of getting to the issue of plot or maybe that um, that you know high point in the story. I'm going to make an inadequate comparison and analogy. Okay. Um, if you've ever been in a homily that's really, really long, and you can tell that the priest got excited about it, there's all these words and descriptions, and it's like 30 minutes long, and then you get to the end, and you really don't remember anything that he's saying because you just want him to end. We had a priest at our church a couple years ago named Father Lewis, who I don't, I, he's, he has his own parish now in the Washington, D.C. area. But what I loved about Father Lewis's homilies is they hit, and they were, they were not long. And you know the period at the end of the homily where the priest closed, and there's the period between him leaving the um, the the pulpit and walking back to yeah. the chair and that pause, that space. Yeah, that was my favorite part of Father Lewis's homilies because I always knew that space was there, and that was like the most powerful part. The, the 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 silence afterwards, where you're left with yourself and your own thoughts. And I think Hemingway allows you to have that experience throughout the reading. Oh yeah, where you read something and then it just it cuts off, and it lets you sit with it. Rather yeah. than, than to, and because of that, it imprints it on your mind. Well, that was definitely more. the case with the last one oh, with uh, Short and Happy Life of Francis McComer. <laughs> I just kind of sat at the end of that one for quite a while, really thinking about the ending. Um, and kind of, like you said, like living there in what, what was just laid out for you. The um, So this story, in terms of setup and the characters, you know, we've got this guy who's well we have all these characters who have these various injuries mm -hmm. and they're at a hospital uh and they're all taking part in what they've been told are these brand new machines mm -hmm. that are going to mm -hmm. fix the broken parts of their yes. body that aren't working but what's interesting that the main character observes is they're putting pictures on the wall of all these people who've used these machines and had success with them. Yet we they've been told that that these are new machines and this the is first the first time, time that they've, they've ever been, been used. used. So right there we have something very interesting going on in the story. Apparently there is I think there's a theme in here of, you know, dishonesty or what we what we tell people um in situations where we're trying to manage their expectations, right? There's a separation between the appearance of something and the reality of something. And you even see it in the main character with the medals that he has. You realize that he had these medals for some reason because he's an American fighting in Italy. So he was just given these medals and he didn't actually earn them. Uh -huh. But he had them and he liked the idea of what they communicated to other people. But I think there was something that went public. It was either in a journal or a paper and people found out that he had these medals because of him being an American rather than what he did in battle. And all of a sudden he was removed from that community of people in that rehab who earned those medals for the right reason. Mm. And he was no longer part of them because the appearance of what was going on was different than what was actually happening. Mm. And you saw that same thing with the machine. Like, well, we're going to put these pictures up. Um, it was like this kind of mind over matter psychological motivation that the doctor was trying to do for these people that were in very tough situations. 
to provide them hope. And yeah, like I mean, telling them that oh, you'll be able to go back to playing football, or you'll be able to go back to um, the guy with the hands problem. What was he saying? Oh, I guess he was pointing to. He was a fencer. He was a, a world famous. Or he was like one of the top fencing um, people in Italy. It was almost like this promise of the damage that war has caused can be erased. Like we can actually make you better than you were before. Yet you have these people who either they're not so sure or they're completely not buying in. Of course we see the, is it the major um, who's the character that we find out, you know, at the end that his wife has actually just died. Um, but he obviously isn't, he isn't buying that. Like he's participating in this, but he has no expectation well, uh, that life is returning to a better no, place. than. Th- there are things that you're going to lose. There are going to be hardships where it's not going to go back to the way it was beforehand. There, there yeah. is no, there is no recovery. And I think what you see with Hemingway, a theme in a lot of his stories is the actual strength, the actual heroics of the human condition is not the restoration or these things that come back the way that they are. It's yeah. the the persevering and existing despite that. That um, you'll never have the right hand. Uh, the, your hand will never be the way that it was. Your leg will never be the way it was. But you keep on. You keep on going. And this this keeping on of going. Old man in the sea. It's about them. A huge theme in this is just endurance and survival. These hardships of life just hit you and hit you and hit you. But you keep on going and you keep on getting back up. And in that grind, there's this. There's this. Transformation, right? I don't know. Yeah, you could call it transformation, but just this, that there's a heroism in that that um, is is admirable. And it's removed from kind of the aesthetic of looking nice and and looking good. There's this depth to these people. And you see that um, with with the the man at the end of the story who who loses his wife. But I wanted to go back to a quote that I had earlier on about the ribbons. Um, I was never ashamed of the ribbons, though at some times after the cocktail hour, I would imagine myself having done all the things they had done to get their medals. But walking home at night through the empty streets with the cold wind and all the shops closed, trying to keep near the streetlights, I knew that I would never have done such things. And I was very much afraid to die. And I often lay in bed at night by myself, afraid to die, and wondering how I would be when I went back to the front again. And we saw this too in The Happy Life of Francis McComber, where um, Francis McComber Hey, can we tell the people that I killed the lion, right? Well, no, what matters is if you actually killed the lion. Hey, I have these medals. They make me look good. No, what matters is what you actually did. Mm-hmm. The substance of the character, the per- like the, again, I don't want to, I, re- I reference Old Man of the Sea because hopefully some of you have read that. But the old man has this epic mythical struggle with this fish, mm-hmm. right? But by the time he brings it back, the sharks have eaten all of it. So he just brings back this carcass. Mm. And he, he's never, there's never this knowledge of the, or the celebrity celebration of what he has done. But that doesn't matter. What matters is that he did it. What matters is this character. And I think that's the redemption you get in Hemingway. Sooner or later, either in this life or next, there will be a recognition of the way things actually are yes. versus the, the way that we perceive things. Because honestly, how many people have done heroic things that we'll never know about? Oh, yeah. And then how many people have had the appearance of doing something that's heroic or noteworthy that's nothing more than that? And and Hemingway was a real man, right? Mm-hmm. And we're in, a, in the age of Instagram and, and social media and appearance and how things look. And why don't rather than the focus on this, this strength and this character, 
inward that comes out the only time that we see it in times of immense struggle and pain. I think that that message and what you just described just really aptly connects to what we've been discussing a little bit in the last couple of weeks of what is actually going on or what what the invitation is for us in this situation we have all being in our homes during Lent, during Holy Week, and now coming up to Easter um, with this COVID virus, um, with COVID-19. And um, and so the situation that we are in this season um, of Lent this year is, as we've discussed this, um, is a very private practice of our faith Mm -hmm. and not public at all. And Chesterton is someone has said, you know, what matters actually is the private. That's the most important one, the private life. And so often, I think the opportunity here is that we are being given a situation in which we cannot, we really don't have the access to any means that would let us perform for God. We really are living an entirely private Lenten, Holy Week, and Easter this year. We're not out gathered with other Catholics at, and we're not out partaking public, publicly of the sacraments or of the um, all of the events that we would be doing doing this Holy Week. And the the idea that God is inviting us to a private restart regeneration with Him, like a time that like there's no we don't we're not showing up with a uniform and badges on for which is which is see. very very hard for people. And I it was is, talking to it a, is hard. I was talking to a, a good friend of mine who's a priest who I really respect. And he was talking about the pressure that he has had in his own parish to to um, live stream masses and to think, do things during Holy Week. And he said, you know, I really think this is an opportunity where God is presenting with us a removal from these things. And instead of kind of having um, fake things, I don't want to say fake things, but really, honestly, mass online and, and mass, is it's really not mass. The same way it is when you're there. Yeah, it's good to participate in like the, it's not that it's bad to participate, but the idea that, oh, we're going to do this virtual substitute, which I don't think any of us really think is a substitute. We want the real thing. But it could keep us, like you're saying, so busy in like the busyness of the virtual substitutes that we like lose the opportunity. But go back to that image that I talked about earlier on where the the beauty and the art and the absence of something. Yeah. Those people who do the art where they look at, they take the dirt and they remove the dirt to make a picture. Yeah. Um, and I would say that th- this idea of having something removed from me, instead of giving it a virtual substitute, yes. but to contemplate its removal and in that absence to find the beauty of Christ in the absence of something, rather than let's just fill it up with something else. I was on Facebook, which is always a mistake, yesterday. <laughs> I hate Facebook. But um, I go to it every once in a while. I don't really post on it too much anymore, but I, I kind of look at it in a voyeuristic way. Maybe I shouldn't because it, it puts me in judgment zone. <laughs> but it didn't take long that there are a lot of people who are home who are who are obviously because of COVID that uh, they're like, okay, I got to keep my family busy. We got to do all these things during Holy Week that we would do. And there's all these arts and crafts we're going to do. And we're going to do this every day. And right. we're going to do these different things. Right. And I'm like, oh my gosh. And it made me stressed out just looking at it. Yeah. But this idea of the removal of something and just being. Right. Just being right. and just sitting there and being and contemplating the absence of something. Contemplating the absence of that in your life. 
Um, and it's weird. When you contemplate the absence of the sacrament, you have this dual thing that takes place. One, you miss it and you see the value of it. But at the same time, you see the overall, uh, the overwhelming presence of God um, in the absence of that thing. Yeah. In the negative. And I know in the Eastern Church, there was a tradition, I think it was in the Russian Orthodox, where a lot of times they would like create a hole in a structure or, or a, a place of prayer. And it was God in the absence of something. And I think yeah. that that kind of helps you because if you're if you're a a someone who really values some of the things that Aquinas gave us in the church, this idea that well we can never really know God except through inadequate analogy. Right. And the second we think we grasp God, then we've missed it. The God in the absence, God in the void, is is it's hard because we can't we can't create him into the thing that we want God to be. We have to we have to contemplate the void, contemplate the absence, um, and it's similar to these people in this story as they're sitting there in these machines. No, 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 these machines will will heal you, right? Just look at these pictures, and part of them knew that that wasn't the case, and instead of like the, let's fix you, it's this contemplation of my current existence in the absence of something. Mm-hmm. Okay, I won't I won't play soccer again. I won't be yeah. a world class fencer. That is my condition, and and the funny thing is, God is in that is in that moment, and there could be something deeper and richer rather than just fixing it and making everything the way that it is. And that that's what I think. A lot of people have jobs at dioceses that they they're trying to figure out why they have a job, and so they they're they're doing their best to create these different posts and these things and these guides and you know stuff like that because we got to show that we're 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 essential. Mm-hmm. But um, I I know for me personally, this this restart has been kind of a move towards more of a monastic state of being. And that I'm actually recognizing not that, oh man, I need all these things, but a lot of these things that I thought that I needed, I, I don't. Um, and some of the things that I do need, I've been neglecting um, yeah. during this, this Holy Week. Yeah, and coming back to something you said in the story about what they, you know, what they're not gonna get, what these characters aren't gonna get back it's interesting, like you can be at different levels of recognizing that. Like I think the main character might have an inkling that he might not be playing football again, but yeah, he's like, well, maybe. I mean, this doctor, you know, is saying that I am. You clearly see that the major has is not coming. I mean, he, though he keeps coming, he does not appear to believe that like this machine's going to do anything for him. Um, and obviously, he's despondent because we find out that he's lost his wife. But he's like in this state where his experiential like what he has experienced is that he he's like on on the far side of that he's just like i'm not going to get anything back I mean, he's he's sort of in despondency because he's he's even lost his wife it's beyond his you know his his the use of his hand for the for the other, for the main character it's almost like well he's moving on to thinking about getting married and he's and you know the major's like well don't do that you know you're just going to lose this person um, so there's this idea that, oh, well, even though I might not get my, um, you know, experiencing the void of losing, losing the ability to play football, right, or like this physical thing, I'm going to move on to these other th- opportunities I have in life. So he, he's, it's kind of a, it's kind of an interesting to see two characters in a different vantage points of vantage points of loss or of accepting loss in life. But we see that we see though a very with the one guy. I just want to read this last part. Mm-hmm. Um, the major came very regularly to the hospital. I do not think he ever missed a day, although I'm sure he did not believe in the machines. There was a time when none of us believed in the machines. 
And one day the major said it was all nonsense. Mm. The machines were new then, and it was we who were to prove them. It was an idiotic idea. He said a theory like another. I had not learned my grammar, and he said I was stupid, impossible disgrace, and he was a fool to have bothered with me. He was a small man, and he sat straight up in his chair with his right hand thrust in the machine and looked straight ahead at the wall while the straps thumbed up and down with his fingers in them. What will you do when the war is over, he asked. Speak grammatically. I will go to the States. Are you married? No, but I hope to be. The more a fool you are, he said. He seemed very angry. A man must not marry. Why, Senor Magmore? Don't call me Senor Magor. Why must a man not marry? He cannot marry. He cannot marry, he said angrily. If he is to lose everything, he should not place himself in a position to lose that. He should not place himself in a position to lose. He should find things he cannot lose. He spoke very angrily and bitterly and looked straight ahead while he talked. Now, it's interesting. When you're at this point in the story, you're like, this guy's kind of a jerk. Why is he so bitter? Mm-hmm. And you could be harsh on the character, right? You don't you don't like him, right? And But then there's this reveal. <coughs> a little bit further. I'm sorry. He'll lose it, the major said. He was looking at the wall. Then he looked down at the machine and jerked his little hand out between the straps. Slapped it hard against his thigh. He'll lose it. He almost shouted, don't argue with me. Then he was called to the attendant who ran the machines. Come and turn this damn thing off. He went back into the other room for the light treatment and massage. Then I heard him ask the doctor if he might use the telephone and shut the door. When he came back into the room, I was sitting in another machine. He was wearing his cape and had his cap on. He came directly towards my machine and he put his arm on my shoulder. So this transfer made you very mean. I don't want to talk to you. He comes in, he puts his arm on his shoulder. I am sorry, he said and patted me on the shoulder with his good hand. I would not be rude. My wife has just died. You must forgive me. Oh, I said, feeling sick for him. I am so sorry. He stood there biting his lower lip. It is very difficult, he said. I cannot resign myself. He looked straight past me out through the window. Then he began to cry. I am utterly unable to resign myself, he said, and choked, and then crying, his head up looking at nothing, carrying himself straight and soldierly, with tears on both cheeks and biting his lips, he walked past the machine and out of the door. The doctor told me that the major's wife, who was very young and who he had not married until he was definitely invalid out of war, had died of pneumonia. She had only been sick for a few days. No one expected her to die. The major did not come to the hospital for three days. Then he came at the usual hour wearing a black band on the sleeve of his uniform. When he came back, there were large frame photographs around the walls of all sorts of wounds before and after they had been cured by the machines. In front of the machines the major used were three photographs of hands like his that were completely restored. I didn't know where the doctor got them. I always understood we were the first to use the machines. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to point something out real quick here. I, I love this scene. Like, I got moved emotionally just reading it now. Mm-hmm. Um, he finds out his wife's dead. He goes back. He's being bitter to this person. He says, I'm sorry. My wife was, was dead. And what I love here is he's not in denial, right? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, he's not despondent to the point. There's this Hemingway-esque, says, I am utterly unable to resign myself. He said and choked and then crying, his head looking up at nothing, carrying himself straight and soldierly with tears in both cheeks and biting his lips. He walked past the machines and out the door. There's this, there's still this resiliency. And yeah. he, he's, he's fully in touch with his loss. 
right? He's overwhelmed, but at the same time, he, he's he's soldierly, he's dignified, he's walking along. That's a very Hemingway-esque image to me. Yeah. But, it, I mean, it, it's so honest, the... Um, it just the, gets just me the, rec- the recognition that I can't... I'm not okay with this. I can't resign myself to accepting this reality that I'm faced with. Yeah, at least it is honest, which is something pretty significant uh, for this character, for anyone to just to be to assess uh, what is actually the situation. Yeah. And then, you know, we it's an interesting way that he ends the story. I, I don't for some reason, Hemingway stories do not make me sad. Really? Like I get to the end of that and I'm not saddened by it, maybe because I, I have the backdrop of my own worldview. And I think when you do read Old Man in the Sea, I've talked to one of my colleagues about this, John McConnell, who's one of the smartest and most sincere people that I know. And you read Old Man in the Sea, and you know Hemingway died of suicide, mm. which was very prominent in his family. Yeah. Um, and you go, man, Hemingway, you, you, you knew something. You, you, you were bumping up against something in Old Man in the Sea, which was very Christ-like. Which was, but there was something there and... In, in, Somehow, whatever you were dealing with, there was a disconnect between that realization and your art right. and what happened in your own life, which I think is incredibly, incredibly common yeah. um, with people. And um, but I, I think with Hemingway, there, there's something there that does not leave me hopeless because I think there is a metaphysic floating around in his stories. You know, when I think of metaphysics in a story, I think of like Tolkien, and you, you read him, and you go, oh, clearly there's. There's something bigger going on here. And he always referenced that in passing in his stories. But he's never explicit with religion in his stories. He's never explicit. If you read if you read Lord of the Rings, there is no religion in Lord of the Rings that's referred to. So there's no like priestly order. Yeah. You don't get this right. idea of a belief system and deities or anything like that. Right. But you do have this thing that floats around in the background of good and evil, of all things will be restored, that there is a transcendency. And I get that when I read Hemingway as well. Yeah. There's a there's definitely an open door at the end of his stories. There's just sort of something you're being left with. Uh, it's not this closed ending for sure. <laughs> well, we wish you all a beautiful rest of your Holy Week and Easter, Easter tide, and continued health and safety as we um, just continue to walk out whatever God's will and divine providence is for the next. Um, couple weeks of our life until we uh, chat with you again about our next author next month. So we're reading James Joyce in April. And so we'll be back about mid-April to with the first story. Um, stories are posted up on Instagram and on jessicatomi.com. So check those out. Get started reading and uh, have a wonderful, blessed rest of your Holy Week and Easter. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.